We're going to take you back to January 2017 to a round of Senate confirmation hearings. I am very honored that President-elect Trump has asked me to join his team and I'm grateful for his dedication to education. Michigan philanthropist, conservative megadonor, and national school choice advocate Betsy DeVos was fielding questions from senators. She was President Donald Trump's nominee to lead the Department of Education. Democratic senators took turns firing questions at DeVos during the hearings, like Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. Would you be so kind as to tell us uh, how much money your family has contributed to the Republican Party over the years? Um, I wish I could give you that number. I don't know. I have heard... The number was $200 million. Does that sound in the ballpark? Collectively, between yeah, over the my years, entire yes. family, that's, that's possible. The Democratic outrage over DeVos's nomination was intense and immediate. And in Iowa, it's spilling into the presidential campaign. I'm Clay Masters. I'm Kate Payne. From the newsroom of Iowa Public Radio, this is Caucus Land. If there's one way to get Democratic crowds revved up in Iowa, bring up the Secretary of Education. And my first move would be to remove Betsy DeVos uh, as education system. Appoint a Secretary of Education who actually believes in public education. Teachers themselves are a key political block. And candidates are rolling out plans to boost funding for teachers and public schools. How much sway does the federal government actually have over K-12 public education? We'll talk about it with Iowa Public Radio's Grant Gerlach. And later, a conversation with Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren. Caucus Land is sponsored by Gravitate Coworking and by Cornell College in Mount Vernon, Iowa, where students get a first-in-the-nation hands-on experience with the political process every election cycle. Explore interdisciplinary learning at cornellcollege.edu. This is Caucus Land from Iowa Public Radio. Teachers are an important base for Democrats. There are a lot of them. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, Iowa has around 40,000 elementary, middle, and high school teachers. That's about the same number as truck drivers. So as candidates hold rallies across the state, teachers often get their own shout-outs. Now, have we got any teachers in here or teachers-to-be? Woo! Oh, good. Iowa Public Radio's Grant Gerlach is here to explain how candidates say they'll approach K-12 education as president. Grant, just start off, what are they saying? They're saying that they will support teachers. During the caucuses, teachers have been one of the groups that candidates have really been targeting because there are a lot of them and because they bring a lot of energy to the campaigns. They show up and they're well organized. And I was talking to Max Shelley about this. He's a political science professor at Iowa State University. And he says in the last couple of years leading up to this campaign season, teachers unions have been especially active. You know, recently there have been red states, West Virginia is a case in point, uh, where the teachers banded together and they were able to force a Republican legislature to raise salaries. That's a pretty good trick, actually. Took concerted action. And teachers, I think, legitimately are given credit for flipping the Kentucky governor's office. Uh, it'll be controlled by a Democrat now uh, once uh, Bashir is inaugurated. So there's plenty of clout there. And um, honestly, it would take a pretty stupid politician not to try to take advantage of that. So West Virginia and Kentucky, but also Oklahoma, Los Angeles, Chicago, teachers unions have been protesting 
across the country for better conditions in the classroom and better pay. And it wasn't that long ago that teachers were rallying in Iowa at the Capitol because the state was changing collective bargaining rules and teachers wanted to protect their ability to negotiate some of their benefits. Yeah, that was in 2017. And sticking here in Iowa, you know, Public schools are a big part of many of these rural communities across the state. Right. Populations are declining in most rural communities. And as that happens, residents want to protect their public schools. It's one of those important institutions. You know, the grocery store, the school, it's part of what people who live there really identify with. And so that's another thing that candidates are tapping into. So there's a lot of political energy behind the teachers' unions right now, and and candidates are trying to tap into that. How are they going to win over these teachers to their side? Candidates are really appealing to teachers by talking about teacher pay. And that's because there's this gap in the amount that teachers earn compared to people with a similar educational background or people that study the same subject. And this was pointed out by a study from the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. And it showed that that gap is especially pronounced in the U.S. And I was talking to Michael Hansen about this. He's an expert on education policy at the Brookings Institution. The estimate from that report was that teachers are paid about 30 percent less than uh, what other workers in their economies are getting. The take-home message here is that this is a drag on education, it's a drag on schools, and it's a drag on how our students are performing and uh, their future potential outcomes. So this gap is especially pronounced for people who teach things like technology and math and engineering and science, the kinds of subjects where if they had gone into the private sector, they could make a lot more money. So what exactly are the candidates saying they would do to raise teacher salaries? There are a few different ways they talk about doing this. One comes from Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. He just wants to set a base floor for what teachers are paid in the U.S. at $60,000. And there aren't a lot of specifics, but basically he wants the federal government to give more money to states to use for that purpose, to raise teacher salaries to that level. Uh, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, former Vice President Joe Biden, both have plans that would give more money to states through Title I. This is funding for schools in low-income areas, and they would require some of that money to be used to raise teacher salaries. So that's another way to do it. Then you have New Jersey Senator Cory Booker and former Housing Secretary Julian Castro. They both would use tax credits, refundable tax credits for teachers, and that would be up to $11,000 for Cory Booker, up uh, to $10,000 for Julian Castro. So at the end of the year, teachers file their, file their taxes and get a bigger refund. That would be a way to raise their salaries. Um, Pete Buttigieg, the South Bend, Indiana mayor, says he wants to increase federal funding for schools and teacher pay. He doesn't really have a specific plan for it. But the federal government, I mean, they're, they're not really involved in paying local teachers. No, they're not. So how would this work? Well, that's a good question. Um How would the federal government become part of this process? Because right now, salaries are worked out between teachers' unions and their local districts. Maybe the state gets involved. So where could the federal government come into this? If it's a tax credit, it could be pretty straightforward. You know, a teacher files their taxes at the end of the year. They receive the refund. It would be delayed. It wouldn't be part of their paycheck. If it's Title I money that goes to uh, low-income schools, Michael Hansen says that could be more complicated. The question that, of course, would come out of that is does is whether support for competitive teacher salaries 
uh, from Title I funding, whether that's only potentially possible for um, teachers in these schools, in these high-need schools, or whether it's something that uh, could open up funding elsewhere. Um, these are some policy questions that haven't really been squared by the candidates, but that's one uh, approach that some have taken on. And so the whole field of Democratic candidates, they're really trying to contrast themselves with the Trump administration. How are they planning to do things differently than President Donald Trump? The first big change that they all talk about is changing who's in charge of the Department of Education, and that's Betsy DeVos. Appoint a secretary of education who actually believes in public education. First thing I will do is make sure that the secretary of education, not Betsy DeVos, it is a teacher. Of course, they would be getting rid of a secretary of education and and, and appointing their own cabinet. How has she become this lightning rod? Well, coming in, she had no experience working with public schools. And not only that, she's a strong proponent of charter schools, especially in Michigan, where she's from. And the fear was that as part of Trump's cabinet, she would gut public school funding and move all this money from public schools to charter schools, and it would really upend the education system from the ground up. What actually happened is you did see DeVos and President Trump request more money for charter schools. They also proposed big cuts to the Department of Education. But that was in the president's budget. And most of the time, these president's budgets go to Congress to die. They don't actually become law. Lots of things change. So what actually happened in the end is that charter schools did get more money in in the charter school grant program, about $100 million per year, and the department budget grew slightly. You didn't see the the cuts that the president recommended. But let's talk about what Betsy DeVos has done. She has shrunk the Office of Civil Rights. She's rolled back guidance from the Obama administration on transgender students and discipline, which was meant to stop schools from suspending disproportionate numbers of black students. DeVos has also been accused of directing the department to stop sharing information that's used in federal oversight of student loan programs, including loans that go to teachers in the K-12 system. But Michael Hansen says she hasn't undermined public schools the way many people feared she would. And so I feel like much of the rhetoric on the left that is uh, very, very weary of charter schools and school choice programs, um, I feel like these are much more reactionary to the specter of school choice rather than uh, reacting to any real policies that DeVos herself has been putting into place. And so when it comes to charter schools, we have seen some divisions across the Democratic Party. As far as these Democratic candidates this cycle, how are they approaching charter schools? Well, you still see candidates reacting to DeVos support for charter schools in their own proposals. If you look at uh, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, they would both put a moratorium on new charter schools. They would both outlaw for-profit charter schools. And Warren says she would also end the federal charter school program. And that may appeal to teachers unions because they don't want to see money moving out of public schools and into charter schools. But those policies could put the candidates at odds with another voting bloc for the Democratic Party. And that's minority voters because they often support charters as an alternative to underfunded, low-quality public schools. There was a recent campaign stop in Atlanta 
where Elizabeth Warren was giving a speech and she was interrupted by supporters of charter schools who were yelling out, our children, our choice. Some candidates defend charter schools, especially Cory Booker. He talks about when he was mayor of Newark and the city helped establish new public charter schools and they were happy with how they worked. He says the difference between his vision of charter schools and Betsy DeVos is that he would require more rigorous reporting and accountability from those schools. And so one of the key questions here in this whole debate is the aspect of how much control the federal government actually has over these public schools compared to state governments and the actual local school boards. What's what's the breakdown there? Well, one way to look at that is to look at where the money is coming from. And if you look at school revenue from the federal government in Iowa, that's close to about $500 million. But we're talking about $7 billion of revenue coming in for Iowa schools each year. So it's really just a small portion of the money going to schools in Iowa. And Max Shelley at Iowa State says it plays out about the same nationwide. In 2017, the federal portion for school funding was $55 billion overall, but that was less than 10% of school funding across the board. And that sounds like a lot of money. When you spread that across 50 states and thousands of school districts, it's um, a drop in the bucket, more or less, you know, for any individual district, particularly down to the building level, it isn't that much money. So it's really states and local school boards that are making the big decisions on taxes and how to spend that money and when to hire and fire teachers, what kind of curriculum they want to use. What you see the federal government deal with more often is equity, trying to even out funding between schools and districts. So generally, Democratic candidates are proposing big increases in things like Title I funding, which goes to schools in low-income neighborhoods, and uh, IDEA, which is federal money for special education, and that's a program that's been underfunded for years. And teachers respond to these proposals too because they see the impact that money has in their schools. What you don't see candidates talking about are big federal interventions in how schools are run. Things like No Child Left Behind, which came in under President George W. Bush. You know, that was a program that had a lot of standardized testing and made schools accountable for those test results. That's not what you're seeing come from Democrats this time around. It's more money and still a lot of local control on how that money is spent. So this litmus test that candidates are facing on K-12 is how will you protect public schools? How will you fund public schools? Even though the politicians who have the greatest influence on how schools are run are at the local and state level. And with Democrats wanting these teachers to show up on caucus night, I mean, don't expect them to stop talking about public K-12 through education anytime soon. They're going to keep trying to get those teachers in their corner. All right. Iowa Public Radio's Grant Gerlach. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Caucus Land is sponsored by Cornell College and by Gravitate Coworking, providing flexible workspace for freelancers, remote workers, teams, or anyone sending emails from a couch or a coffee shop, including those in Iowa for the caucuses, with premier co-working spaces in downtown Des Moines and Historic Valley Junction. Learn more at gravitatecoworking.com. Are you enjoying this episode of Caucus Land? Find more stories about the candidates and learn about their positions on the issues. 
Stay up to date on the race to the White House by going online to iowapublicradio.org 2020. Your support makes caucus land possible. Take a few minutes and donate to IPR. Whether it's $5, $10, or more, your gift is an investment in high-quality journalism. This is Caucus Land from Iowa Public Radio. I'm Clay Masters. I'm Kate Payne. Senator Elizabeth Warren has been making regular trips to Iowa since the start of 2019. She's built a massive ground operation here, and her life story is part of her pitch. In early December, Warren changed her approach. So I thought what we'd do today is I'd try to give you just a kind of real short version of who I am and why I'm in this fight, and then we'll just take as many questions as we can get in. That's Warren speaking at a town hall on the campus of the University of Iowa in Iowa City. She spoke for almost an hour and a half, took pictures with everybody who wanted one, and fielded more than a dozen questions from the audience. Hi, Uh, what's your name? uh, Beth. Hi, Beth. Is that an Elizabeth? Yes. Whoa. (laughs) Double Elizabeth. Okay. First may I say... Feel the power. (laughs) Beth's question was pretty emotional. Um, I grew up in the generation terrified to go to school because of gun threats. Like, I've had multiple one. I've had, like, seen that stuff, and it's really scary. And so I want to know what you're going to do about it. Okay. I know. So let's, let's talk about the problem, okay? We have a gun violence problem in America, and that's how we need to think of it. We sat down with Warren before her town hall in Iowa City. We started by asking her about her Medicare for All plan and the scrutiny she's faced for it. If we do nothing in the system, we just leave the system exactly where it is. Over the next 10 years, the experts tell us Americans are going to reach in their pocket for about $11 trillion in out-of-pocket costs. That's premiums and copays and deductibles and uncovered expenses. That's what people are going to pay. So the way I looked at this is I came up with a solution that said, how could I get $11 trillion somewhere else in the system? And that's why I go to the top 1%, to the big corporations, to the tax cheats. And by golly, you can add that one up to about $11 trillion. The Medicare for all uh, uh, proposals, all who want it, proposals that are out there, offer about a trillion dollars, maybe a trillion and a half over 10 years? Well, you can't cover an $11 trillion cost with $1 trillion. I mean, this is just plain old math. So what that really means is that it's Medicare not for all who want it, it's Medicare for all who can afford it because 90% of the cost is still going to be borne by the individual. Um, we just can't keep doing that. People can't afford it. It doesn't work in our health care system. So it means families are going to keep going broke, and it means people who can't afford it either do without the health care or count on the charity of the hospitals to continue to provide it. And that's not working for anybody. 
there are still serious barriers to get a plan like this implemented. I spoke with Representative Abby Finkenauer Mm -hmm. and and asked her if she would support your Medicare for All plan. She said that she wants a public option. This Mm -hmm. is a representative who flipped a very competitive district from red to blue in 2018. She's one of these representatives who you would really need to have their support. How do you win over people like her? So let's start with reducing the cost of drugs. I mean, you can go ask her, but I suspect she would strongly support a president using march-in powers and saying we're going to reduce the price of EpiPens and and insulin and a whole lot of other high blood pressure medications and so on. Let's do that first. And let's have everybody look left, look right, see how that works. And then let's reduce the cost, uh, or let's reduce the age on Medicare. Nobody has to go into it, but let people who want to do it. That's, that's literally, that's over 40 million people who can make that switch and then have experience with that sh- switch. Let's, let's live with Medicare that actually covers hearing aids and glasses and helps people with dental care. Let's live with Medicare that covers long-term health uh, for people. Um, let's live with those pieces because I think that's how we're going to build the allies. And look, we're better off at each stage. If we reduce the cost of drugs, that's going to help millions of families across this country. And it's going to help them to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. If we lower the age of Medicare, that's going to help tens of millions more. If we cover all of our children, that's going to help millions more. Let's do the good we can do as quick as we can do it. Let's live with it and learn from it and experience it. I think that's how we're going to build a healthcare system that's not about people fighting each other. It's a system about let's get the maximum coverage to the maximum number of people and let's do it as fast as we can. I want to turn now to the impeachment inquiry into President Donald Trump. An NPR poll recently showed that uh, the electorate is largely saying that more information on the impeachment inquiry won't change their mind. Uh, They've already decided no information will make a difference for 65% of them. Uh, How do you govern a country that seems so divided and is apparently not interested in changing their minds uh, when presented with new evidence? You know, I, I actually don't see it that way. I see it as a lot of people say the facts are pretty clear right now. You know, let's be blunt here. Donald Trump has not denied that he made offers to Ukraine. And boy, we've had one person after another from his administration come in and say, yeah, and it was not to try to advance the position of the United States, uh, this aid was held up on a string uh, not to help Ukraine better fight Russian aggression, but in order to get Ukraine to do something that would help Donald Trump personally and politically. And that's just wrong. And unless the president wants to come forward with some other version of the facts, wants to give some explanation that literally not one Republican seems to be able to give, I understand that a lot of folks have made up their minds about this. They've said the the evidence is out there and it's clear. 
And for me, I see this as much more important than politics. You know, when I first got in this race, I never in a million years thought this would be about impeachment. And yet, when the Mueller report came out, I sat down that very day and started reading. I read all 442 pages. I got to the end, and it was clear to me that a hostile foreign government had attacked our 2016 election for the purpose of helping Donald Trump. Second, that um, as candidate, Donald Trump had welcomed that help. And third, when the federal government tried to investigate number one and number two, that as president, Donald Trump did everything he could to obstruct that investigation. And I mean, there's chapter and verse in the Mueller report. So when I got to the end, I said, that's it. I think we need to start an impeachment inquiry. And if we fail to do that, this man will break the law again. And sure enough, that's what he did in the summer with Ukraine. It's evidently what he tried to do in September with China. It's what he's trying to do right now by saying he won't let people testify and he's going to block access to documents that Congress has a right to see. So this is about a fundamental question in the Constitution. And I think the Constitution is clear. No one is above the law, not even the President of the United States. If this president can get away with such aggressive law-breaking and taking care of himself at the expense of the interests of the United States of America, not only does it mean he gets to be lawless going forward, it means so does the next president and the next president and the next president. That's not who we are as a country. So... I don't believe this should be about politics. I think this should be about the oath of office that every single member of Congress took, and that is to uphold the Constitution, not not to be loyal to a political party, not to be loyal to an individual president, but to uphold the Constitution. I believe we have to vote on this, and then every single person is going to have to live with their vote forever. I'm curious, Senator, then based on the reactions that you've seen from members of Congress, their supporters, you know, when you talk about the oath of office, um, I mean, how troubled are you by the response from Republican members of Congress who seem to not be responding to this evidence and and the voters who are backing them? I'm, I'm deeply troubled. I know this is hard, and I know this is a hard decision for them, and I know that they're under a lot of pressure politically. But there are some things that are more important than politics. And that is to uphold the Constitution. If future presidents, don't even think of this president, if future presidents are not bound by the rule of law, if they're not held accountable, if they put their own interests ahead of the interests of the United States of America, then the basic checks and balances we wrote into the our our framers wrote into the constitution are just gone and that can't be the country that we are going forward i i urge my colleagues and i mean this most sincerely i know this is hard but they've got to set aside politics this has got to be about patriotism to the united states of america 
As we were getting up from the interview, we asked Warren about her time in public education decades ago. She regularly talks on the stump about how becoming a teacher was her dream job. We asked why she left it. What, what made you not want to stick with it, right? Like, I, I got fired. But can you go back? <laughs> you, could have, you could have gone to another job, though, ultimately, right? Years later. Mm-hmm. By then, I'd gone back to school. I got a law degree. I practiced law for 45 minutes. And then I went into teaching. I did go back to it. Warren said it's about finding the way she could make the biggest difference. And for me, it started out with four to six-year-olds in special education. And now it's running for president and wanting to put $800 billion into our public schools, including full funding for IDEA, which means every child with a disability gets the education they need. Um, It would be an historic change. And I think it's important. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. And now an update on the crowded field of Democrats. They lost a few. The biggest name gone? Kamala Harris. The California senator came here often, spent a lot of money, had high-profile endorsements and a big staff here. Harris said she dropped out because she didn't have the money to keep going. Montana Governor Steve Bullock also called it quits. The moderate who won a statewide election in 2016 despite President Trump being on the ballot never really took off. But the field also gained Michael Bloomberg. The former New York City mayor is not focusing on Iowa. Instead, he's spending a lot of money on TV ads in larger and more diverse states that vote on Super Tuesday. That's in March, when a lot of other states will be voting. The Iowa caucuses are bearing down. They're less than two months away. This episode of Caucus Land was produced by me, Clay Masters, Kate Payne, Grant Gerlock, and John Pemble. Our music was composed by Garrett Schmidt and performed by Garrett and Aaron James. Our news director is Michael Leland. Our executive producer is Katherine Perkins. We also get help from our digital team, Lindsay Moon and Matt Searin. Subscribe to Caucus Land wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and share the show. Caucus Land is a production of Iowa Public Radio.